I think that either the AMPTP is going to come to its senses and give us what it is that we deserve, or we'll replace them. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. My guest is Sean Sharma. Sean is a professional actor. He's been so for close to 20 years. He's from Minnesota. Uh, I don't know why I said it like that. I'm not from Minnesota, but anyway, you might know Sean from the hit show, The Chosen, a Jesus drama. He plays Shmuel the Pharisee. But the double treat about having Sean on the show is that Sean is also a dedicated SAG after board member. We talk about the strike and he breaks down the whole purpose of the strike and negotiations, our alliance with WGA. He is very insightful, very on the ground floor, has a lot of information, very informative podcast. Check it out. Boom. And so it begins. I got Sean Sharma here. The man, the myth, the legend. Um, <laughs> I'm one of those people that love to see people succeed or go to the next level because it makes it more tangible mm-hmm. for the rest of us. So I'm excited about what you're doing. You've seen Sean in everything, man. He's been, wait, <laughs> first let me just say, hey, everybody, this is Sean Sharma. Say hello, Sean. Hey, nice to talk to you. <laughs> now let me brag about you. All right. <laughs> So yeah, Sean's been on so many different shows, um, Scandal, uh, SEAL Team, NCIS, countless number of shows, but he's also like most known right now in The Chosen, playing the role of Shmuel. Nicely done. Most people can't (laughs) say that right. (laughs) It's biblical, man. I got to get that right. (laughs) That's right. But he, who is a Pharisee, right? Is that correct? Uh, yeah. uh, from the Bible, if you guys know your Bible. Um, I wish I read the Bible more. I could, I could pontificate on <laughs> who the Pharisees were and basically. But anyway, you're playing a great character. That's. Um, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't really say you're a villain because you're. You're the template. You're there. You're the religion. Uh, the sort of point zero for that religion, and Jesus is kind of shaking it up a little bit. Yeah. You know, the Pharisees represented very strict followers of Torah. And so they had, uh, you know, an expectation of how the Messiah would come back. And obviously, Jesus did not come back in the way that they expected. And not everybody was quick to accept the Messiah in the form of Jesus, as opposed to uh, a warrior king who was going to overthrow the Romans with violence and with, you know, so, uh, so yeah, I represent pretty much everybody who wasn't quick to accept Jesus as the Messiah when he came onto the scene. Yeah, the status quo pretty much at, at the time. Yeah, I mean, Shmuel is not a bad guy. He's just trapped in what he was raised to believe. And many of us can relate to a character who isn't quick to abandon everything that they were taught and raised to believe and follow. Um, you know, Shmuel is a good Pharisee. He's a he's a religious person. He's his he loves God and serves God, and he thinks that's what he's doing, even though he's wrong in this particular case. The wrong side of history, but uh, you, you don't really know that. It's very metaphorical for the times that we're in. Someone comes in and shift things a little bit. We're like, hey, wait a minute, that's not supposed to be done. And 
it's easy to be in hindsight go yeah i would have done this and that but <laughs> I, you- I love to hear that from the, the 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 fans of the show who say you know i'm going to be a little less judgmental now because who's to say that i would have just accepted right. right away without you know having serious doubts or thoughts about it how's playing a character like that sort of because you know as actors you, a lot of times that character can bleed into affecting you in your real life oh i've i feel like shmuel and i have a lot in common um because you know i i don't i i try to be open-minded so in that way i don't think shmuel and i are the same but as for somebody who is you know willing to put himself out there and to take the heat for making decisions and for being willing to step up when other people don't step up. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of been my life story since I was in junior high school. And so I've always kind of been different just being one of the only, you know, ethnic people in junior high and high school. And then one of the few ethnic actors in Minneapolis before I moved to Los Angeles. So a lot of my formative years were speaking up as somebody who was different than everybody else. That's a good point you're bringing up. I wanted to mention there's people from Minneapolis that listen to the show, so I want them to know that you're repping hard. Born and raised in Minnesota. I left there at the age of 27 to come to Los Angeles and uh, got involved in running sessions. Slowly from there, I started working with around 45 casting directors over the 10 years that I ran sessions. And then I stopped running sessions in 2018 when I joined the board of SAG-AFTRA. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then fortunately, I've been able to support myself with my, you know, artistry since then. Um, but I really, really loved running sessions. And I did it a lot, sometimes six, seven days a week and spent a lot of time in the dark. <laughs> so quickly tell people what running session really is all about. Like, Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we, we partner with the casting directors to handle the audition part of the job. Um, but we're the partner to the casting director who handles, you know, putting people on tape, telling them what to do, helping them give the best performance, working with the clients in the callback, et cetera. Um, we're your biggest ally in the room because we are usually actors as well. So we can speak the language. First of all, you took the risk to leave Minneapolis because a lot of people don't do that. Mm -hmm. And then you came to LA, you ran sessions. And so you, you, there's a constant elevation of graduation to getting closer and closer to your goals. And now you're on a TV show. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there might have been people with doubts back in Minneapolis going, are you sure you want to go do that? I've been willing to form my life around my goals and make sacrifices that, um, that you know, like I don't have a family at this point. I'm yeah. looking to take that step in life now with, you know, a person that I really love. Um, but I have, you know, we delayed that because we wanted to conserve our resources so that I had the flexibility to go to auditions and to volunteer and to do things that are helpful for my career. And I think I've attacked, you know, this industry from just about every, you know, direction that you can, both as a, as a, as an actor, as somebody who works in casting, as somebody who volunteered for the union, as somebody who volunteered in grassroots ways, um, I have really tried my best to add value everywhere that I am. And so um, it's just been a gradual process throughout my life of just 
working really hard, making sacrifices. And I burned up my 20s and most of my 30s to get to the point where I was in the right place at the right time and I was ready to meet the challenge. And my work ethic and my support network helped me book this show. And now I have a job for seven or eight years because we know it's a seven season show. And the community is just a beautiful community. And who knows where my journey will take me after that. I kind of hit the lottery with the kind of stories that you could tell because we we as actors want to tell stories that touch people's lives. And the story of Jesus and the disciples touch, touches billions of people's lives. Um, but I'm actually part of a story that people are not only watching for the entertainment, but they're watching to grow closer in their relationship to faith, to be, you know, out of their curiosity of what people who have that faith believe, um, to people watch our show over and over and over again, looking for how it brings the scripture to life. They really feel grateful in a way that other fans of other shows maybe don't because we've helped yeah. people, you know, come back from the edge of, of uh, suicide or, or who gave wow. up some of their, I mean, the stories we hear are crazy about people who, like came back to God after watching the show and it saved them and or saved a family member or restored a relationship between family members or friends. And so there's not a lot of things I can think of that we can watch that people watch trying to be better people. Yeah. Can you tell us what channel and network and all that stuff? Pretty much everywhere you can watch. There's like 40 different platforms. Um, they're airing our first three seasons on the CW. So we're on broadcast on a broadcast station, which is fascinating. I never thought that's how I'd end up on the CW. I thought I'd book some, <laughs> you know, some show with hot 20 somethings, you know, like Riverdale or whatever. <laughs> but no. um, and so, uh, so yeah. And the reason I can talk about uh, the chosen is because we uh, not only were approved for an interim agreement during the strike, but the reason we were and one of the first projects to be approved is because the show is entirely crowdfunded. It is completely independent. It started with 19,000 people donating $10 million for us to shoot wow. our season. Most people watch it through our own website. You can also watch it on the Angel Studios website, which is angel.com. And so it's a completely free show and people voluntarily pay to make the show possible for others to watch. It's called Pay It Forward. So you can contribute so that other people around the world can watch it. And you can also donate to the Come and See Foundation, which was set up to like facilitate, you know, translating the show into 600 languages so that everybody around the world can experience this story and this show in their native language. Wow. So it's like, it's more than a show. It's like a movement. The Chosen has surpassed everybody's expectation. Expectation. So yeah, the, the show's completely independent and you know crowdfunded and free for anybody to watch. You know, it's funny that you uh, the, you you talked about how you conduct your life and how you went after your goals and being the underdog and just relating to what is happening right now as far as the current strike is that you were sort of um, because you wrote a letter. Prior to this, you sort of peel back like how uh, SAG is conducting their day-to-day goings-on. Uh, a lot of it sort of was like, I would say, preemptive to what is happening now. So tell tell me about that. Like, what, what prompted that? Well, I auditioned for a commercial campaign in 2015, and uh, it was a union campaign commercial campaign 
And then after the callback, I got a call saying that they wanted to book me, but they wanted it to be a non-union commercial campaign. And so I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it unless it's a union project. So I'm going to have to step back or you're going to have to turn it union. So four hours went by and they changed the whole thing around to be union again, just because they really wanted me to be the guy. So I ended up shooting this whole NFL network campaign that ran on a bunch of channels for six months. And I wrote an article for Backstage Magazine about how we have the power, because if you can get all the you know, clients and director and everybody at the ad agency like on the same page, they don't want to go to their second choice. They want their first choice. And so they were willing to move things around for me. And uh, and I wasn't involved in union service at all at the time. I just knew that I wouldn't have been able to continue being an actor if I didn't have a, you know, a career saving surgery, thanks to my health insurance through SAG-AFTRA. I ended up that that article that I wrote for Backstage ended up getting read by our bigwigs at the union, our, our top leaders of the union. And they invited me to some meetings. And then they invited me to start teaching for the union in the L.A. Conservatory. And then they added me to the committee that oversees the conservatory. And I just started noticing ways that I could improve things and add value and, and uh, you know, taking responsibility to make things better and better. And that led to me being on the board and then uh, serving on the national board as well. And then being on all these committees and being parts of grassroots organizations. So very quickly, as somebody who just likes to understand things and likes to solve problems, I started seeing what was and what wasn't working well in the union. And I would take the opportunity every couple of years during the election period when you can pay to send an email to the members. And I would write them a letter and I'd say, this is what I experienced. Here's what happened over the last couple of years. Here's the problems as I see it. And it's dense. It's long. I recorded them as audio uh, podcasts so that people could listen to it instead of reading the whole thing that makes it makes it easier. And it ended up being, you know, impacting thousands of our members and making a big impact on the Los Angeles local, for example, and changing the leadership and changing the culture. And um, and now I'm proud to say, after all of these years of hard work, not only from myself, but many others, the Los Angeles local is working properly. We have a great leader in Jody Long, who's the L.A. president and the vice presidents, Shirley Ralph and David Jolliffe and our wonderful board and um, our amazing executive director, Serena. Um, so I'm very proud of where L.A. is. And the next step is to now support our locals around the country to be operating in the best possible way. The idea that we could go from what happened in 2020, where the negotiation was such a disaster that the Los Angeles local and the New Orleans local literally voted against it, saying we don't we don't support anybody voting for this contract. Time's up opposed it. Um, I had serious concerns about that negotiation being compromised and David White and Gabrielle Carteris, you know, throwing the negotiation and undermining it and doing a bunch of crazy things, which I wrote about in my letter to the members in 2021. Well, David White's not here anymore. Gabrielle isn't here anymore. Now we've got Fran Drescher, we've got Duncan Crabtree Ireland, and they have a completely different leadership style, plus all of the work that we've been all doing to make the union stronger it put us in a position to take this strong stand now that we're taking, trying to repair the damage from the past, from all the weak negotiations we've had before. Right. We're now negotiating from a position of strength. And thanks to Fran and Duncan and so many others, uh, here we are. And now I think not a second too late because with AI and other things that represent a real threat to our way of life, um, this was the right time to take that stand. First of all, I should let people know because I have to dumb things down because most of the uh, audience are not SAG members or entertainers. So, But I will say that uh, you are a union, accredited union leader. 
mm-hmm. as well as being on a hit show in great you also take time out to be a great uh, SAG leader, mentor, and teacher. And um, so getting back to your letter, it was very it, it was a very good way to articulate what is happening. Having people uh, read it or hear it explained or articulated in such a way clears a lot of things up and then gives us a better vision of what's happening. You said the, the negotiation before was a failure and how so and how is it different than now? Yeah, it was night and day different um, in so many ways. Uh, I mean, in terms of being able to evaluate it, we saw the disaster firsthand because just a few weeks after the members voted on that contract, there were, you know, 12,000 people kicked off the health insurance in the middle of the pandemic. Right. And we had been told people lied to us who are part of that negotiation, lied to the members and said that the health plan would remain strong if we approved that deal. And then, of course, so many people, mostly seniors, lost their health insurance. Anybody would be justified to have their trust in the union shaken after something like that, because getting those benefits are one of the main reasons we have unions is to protect us and our health and our retirement. So, you know, the way that our negotiations work is we start the process with what's called the W&Ws, which are the wages and working conditions meetings. Those are meetings that members can come to and say, I really think we should change this in the contract, or this is what I'm dealing with. And that's where the ideas come from that end up in what we negotiate for. And mm-hmm. so all of these ideas are collected from all of the W&W meetings around the country. So it's the members on the negotiating committee that make all the final decisions. So all of the ideas from the W&Ws come to the negotiating committee for something we call plenary. And plenary is where we basically choose what are we going to fight for based on all the ideas that our members brought to us in this negotiation. And then that's how we put together our what's called a proposal package, which is what we actually present in our negotiations to the networks and studios. We say, here's all the things we're going to ask you for. And then the back and forth begins trying to make a deal. And so in uh, the last negotiation, there were a number of things that happened that were just plain wrong. Uh, The first thing that happened is that Gabrielle, as our former president, seated the negotiating committee a year early, not because she had to, but because she was trying to ensure that if she lost the election for president that, that fall, that she would still control the negotiations. That was also the summer that for some reason, Fox, which is an AMPTP employer, they're one of the people we would be negotiating against, chose to reboot Beverly Hills 90210, rush its production, surprising Tori Spelling and Jennifer Garth, who were the leads on that process, shot it in Vancouver, paid Gabrielle almost half a million dollars for her work on it, launched that show in the middle of our elections, in the second week of our elections, The show was written so that Gabrielle played a version of herself. So she's Gabrielle in the show. And she was president of the Actors Guild of America in the show. So basically, the show was like an advertisement for her while we were having an active election going on in the union. Mm -hmm. When she she won that election, they canceled the show. So it very much looks like she was paid off to seat the negotiation committee to 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 uh, you know, while she was on the payroll of the AMPTP, she was seating the people that would be negotiating against the AMPTP, and they helped her win the election by launching the show and then canceling it after she won. 
And then she lied and said that the reason they were doing that was to give us more time to get our ducks in a row for the negotiation. But then the negotiating committee didn't meet for eight months. So any claim that it was going to be used to prepare was a total lie. And then COVID happened and they didn't even meet to like discuss how things have changed since the summer before. So they went in with all the things that they talked about, you know, almost a year before. And then they, you know, they didn't even uh, really care what the members wanted because normally we have six weeks of W&W &W meetings for people to come and bring their ideas to the table. Well, Gabrielle decided we only needed one week because they had already decided what they wanted to fight for. So there was almost no opportunity for members to show up and participate and contribute ideas. Yeah. And so you're basically saying that um, Gabrielle was on the take. I mean, kind of she got probably got bought. I mean, I laid out all of that. In, I laid out all the evidence in my late letter that I sent out in 2021. Um, all I can say is if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, smells like a duck, it's probably a duck. They told us that there were five things that they were going to go fight for and win in that negotiation. And they came back with only half of one. The five things that we were promised that they would go fight for were yeah. increasing the employer pension and health caps that fund our health plan. They didn't do that. They were supposed to eliminate advanced payment of residuals in our initial compensation, where basically you're, you're prepaid your residuals in what you think is just your salary for the show or the movie, but they actually just hid your residuals in it. And then you don't get the residuals later that you thought you were going to get to address options and exclusivity where people are trapped in long contracts waiting for their show to get picked up or produced. And then they end up losing a lot of money and work in the process. We were supposed to address a subscription-based video on demand because our, our pay and our residuals were still way below what you get paid for network television. And they were supposed to address advertiser-supported video on demand, AVOD, which is you know, how so many different companies like Hulu and others that run ads, you know, that's, they don't make their money from subscriptions, they make their money from advertising. So those were like five of the things that we were promised that they would accomplish. And they came back with half of one. They just got some increase in uh, subscription residuals, but they gave away syndication, uh, broadcast syndication residuals, which is when you have a show like Seinfeld, uh, Law and Order, or something where it's syndicated around, um, we like our members lost forty to ninety percent of their income that they would get from those residuals because we gave that away and moved to a different model. That uh, is how the Directors Guild and uh, the Writers Guild structure theirs. The problem with doing that is, you know, if we get if if say there's a million dollars and two percent of that goes to a director, well that's 20 grand for that director. If 2% goes to a writer, that's 20 grand for the writer. But if 6% goes to all the sometimes hundreds of performers on a TV show, then that 60 grand gets chopped up a couple hundred ways. That's why you get a penny or two pennies in your residuals, as opposed to the $20,000 that a writer or director is going to get. So it doesn't make any sense for us to have the same model as those other unions, because way more of our members participate in an average show or film than a writer or director does. Right. But that's what Gabrielle and David White did to us. So that's why our residuals have been completely destroyed on the streaming platforms. The contract was super, uh, super weak, made us pay for our own increases to the health and pension plans by taking it out of our you know, our raises that apply to scale to increase kind of our minimums. They diverted some of that to try to prop up the health and pension plan and claim that it was going to make the health plan stronger. 
And then we all know after the contract was ratified that the health plan kicked people off the plan, eliminated plan two, and now you have to earn $26,470 just to qualify for health insurance. And your spouse can't be on the plan if they have another option. They have to take that other option. There were a bunch of things that they eliminated as part of that. There was an absolutely insane pressure campaign to make people vote yes, like totally suppressing any no votes because they sent five different postcards, a weird video with Alec Baldwin trying to like tell people to vote yes. They didn't even put a vote no button on the website. There was only a vote yes button until we like pointed out that that's unfair. What it was is the button that you needed to press to vote only said vote yes. So you'd press it and then you could vote yes or no, but you wouldn't know that because the button only said vote yes. So people who wanted to vote no were confused and didn't know what to do and where to go. It was just from beginning to end, it was just one of the most insane, corrupt, compromised things I'd ever seen. And it was so bad that, like I said, the locals representing over half the members of the union voted against it and said, we don't support this contract. So fast forward now to this negotiation. We had we had two months of W&Ws. We started in November, in December, and ended in January. We had over 250 members come and participate and give their ideas. We had over 300 ideas come from the W&Ws to the plenary. And we spent seven days going through every single idea that members had and debating the merits and everything we thought was, was uh, worthy. We advanced it into the package. And then we went in with a beautiful package. We asked for a strike authorization where we got 98% of the members to vote for that. For, yes, on that, that was 65,000 members voted, which is 47% turnout, which is higher than anything we've ever had in union history. I mean, it was insanely powerful. Right. And, you know, thanks to having new leadership, thanks to all the reform, thanks to doing things right. I can look any member in the eye and say that this was absolutely the opposite of what happened three years ago. This was done with integrity. This was done with inclusivity. This was done with strength, with strategy. Um, and part of why we're having to strike is because the AMPTP was so used to dealing with weak negotiations and weak negotiators that they're really surprised that we actually asked for what we deserve this time. It's like they mm. thought that they could get away with lowballing us and we would just take it because that's what has happened for so many negotiations. But now that there's a new sheriff in town, now that there's new leaders in town, now that we did things right, we're going to go in and make up for lost time and get what it is that we deserve. I laid out all of the evidence for how Gabrielle was bought and paid for by the AMPTP and then even said in the press that she didn't think our members had the will to fight, so we should just take any deal, which is like the whole power of a union is to strike. And for her to say that our members would never strike, just completely cut our, our legs out from underneath us. So, you know, I, all I can say is there probably should be an investigation into, you know, whether she was compromised. I laid out all the evidence that I could in my letter. But one thing is clear is that what happened in 2020 was not okay. And our members were really burned by it. And there, anybody who had hesitations about um, supporting the negotiations this time because of what happened would be justified. But it's such a beautiful example of the resilience of our members and their love for what we do, that they were willing to support us this time and put the trust in the negotiating committee and vote for a strike authorization. And and so I'm really, you know, I already loved our members before, but I love them even more after they were willing to heal from that and support us. Mm. Tell us your name. Uh, Kenny Stevenson. Thank you. And where are we right now? We're at Amazon Studios. The things that we're fighting for right now, yeah. Yeah, woo! The things that we're fighting for right now are things that are just 
critical and can't we're talking about the whole nature of the business at this point mm-hmm. and the billionaires that we are striking against are crafty and conniving and are like bond villains who will do whatever they have to <laughs> to not have to pay us money right. and if we don't do something now the this is just a critical moment for us as artists for us as actors for as writers for as just creatives to even exist basically that's where we're arguing our existence at this point the workers i mean this is capitalism but workers have just been diminished for so long and it's just we're we're just not going to take it anymore so this is this is us exercising our power I and mean, this is yeah. there's, there's a giant beetle just landed on that woman's backpack <laughs> um <laughs> and that's how important it is like yeah. wearing sleek or beetle nothing can stop yeah. us so now that we're uh, on this track and the negotiation abilities and the uh, integrity is now reinserted into the group as far as explaining it to people who are not in the entertainment business what exactly is happening right now well the what's happening is our members have finally stood up and said that we deserve to be able to make a living as performers and 87% of our members thanks to all of the weak negotiations in the past 87% of our members don't even earn enough to qualify for health insurance which is only $26,470 a year so if you think of how people see you know uh actors hollywood they all think focus on like the stars the glitz and the glamour the people who make the, all the you know a lot of money that yeah. is a teeny tiny little fraction of sag after that is like you know half a percent or something that is a very small number of people that make a lot of money most of the people in the union are just blue collar workers scraping by they're people who have dreams they're people who have other jobs that are you know supporting them themselves while they're trying to make it in this industry and so when this union is going out on strike it's saying that it's not okay that we're not getting paid properly that these big companies have changed the business model and we're not getting the kind of compensation that we should be getting when they're making you know 30 billion dollars in profits mm-hmm. last year and we can't even and most of our members can't even make a living what it is that they're doing you can book a bunch of jobs and still not earn enough you can even be the lead on a huge series on you know a big network like you know Netflix or something and still not be able to quit your day job because you're not getting paid enough paid enough and things like artificial intelligence have showed up as well that threaten everybody's ability to do this it sounds like the, the overall theme is sort of greed or it's been happening not just in our business but you see like around the world but what i've noticed is that uh, they are now sort of ceo they follow ceos because companies like apple uh amazon these are the same people who have like indonesian kids making iphones so they're they're not thinking actors are they think like look you're lucky to get what you get that's this seems to be the type of attitude so it's like greed is the sort of number one thing and people you think people are just waking up to the fact that this greed is sort of a runaway train has gone too far. So now we're fighting back and actors are just one of the cogs in the wheel as far as. Absolutely. I mean, because people watch our films and our shows and our programs, and especially we just went through a pandemic where people were trapped in their homes and watching film and TV is what got people through some of those tough moments is mm-hmm. to escape into something that uplifted you or to make you feel less alone and to make you think and things like that. So there's no time 
in history where the value of what actors do is more clear than this moment. And I would include writers and directors in that as well. Like for those of us that do storytelling, there's no time in history that it's been more clear than right now um, how how much value people get out of you know film and television and entertainment. We're a great um, kind of catalyst for bringing visibility to the labor movement in general because right. people recognize our faces or recognize our our shows. And so um, when we're standing up, it gives courage to other people to stand up too who may not be in the entertainment field. Um, and certainly the Writers Guild were the first ones to stand up and do that in this particular moment where they went on strike in May because they were not treated fairly. Right. And part of what we're dealing with is what I call kind of the sociopathy of corporate America right now, where it's like we have sociopaths that are running businesses and they're not being good you know, Americans. They're not taking care of their communities. They're not treating their employees well. It's like the only thing that matters now is the share price and what makes the shareholders happy. And that, you know, the CEOs that do the best job to make the shareholders the most money get these big compensation bonuses in the hundreds of millions of dollars and everybody else is not important. And that's a sick, destructive culture that we have allowed to take place. Um, it doesn't uh, nurture the ground that these companies grew from. Uh, what we're fighting for now is to correct the balance and to change the culture that it's not okay to plunder the rest of us for the benefit of the very few, that right. we all need to share in the benefits of the value that we create. And that's not an unreasonable thing because companies can still be very profitable and shareholders can make a lot of money while also taking care of the people that make all of that possible. And that's been neglected out of just short-term greed and competition for more and more and more profits. You know, in our particular industry, uh, we had a different business model before Netflix came along where we actually knew how well our shows were doing on TV and cable. And if you had a hit show, you could negotiate for higher salaries and better terms and you know, there was a way to kind of know what was working and what wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And uh, the companies were getting advertising dollars for the shows that were doing well. Now Netflix came along and had access to cheap investment money from Wall Street because they were seen as a technology company, not just a traditional broadcast network. So their stock price was trading at 30 or 40 times earnings where a normal company was maybe at 10 times earnings. So all these other companies were like, how can we be like Netflix and how can we get our stock price to be as high as theirs? And mm -hmm. how can we be seen as a technology company? And so uh, Netflix used kind of predatory pricing saying, hey, for only $10 a month, you have access to all of this entertainment. And when they really should have priced it at 60 or 70 or $80 a month, like our cable bills would be, for example, like we'd already figured this stuff out a long time ago that, you know, your cable bill was not 10 bucks. It was like 70 bucks or 80 bucks or something like that. So Netflix came along taking a loss and not making money with cheap money from Wall Street and basically like captured all of these subscribers. They would get the money from the subscriptions. We wouldn't. And they wouldn't even tell us how well our shows were doing on the platform so that we could advocate for ourselves and ask for more money. And they, they after a while, they uh, were spending so much money licensing content from other companies like Seinfeld or The Office or Friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. They'd have to pay a lot of money to be able to play that stuff on Netflix. So they got the bright idea. Why don't we just make our own shows, Netflix original shows? And that way we can, we don't have to pay to license it from anybody. We can just create it and then we can kind of make up whatever we think the value is on our platform because we can't, mm -hmm. they're not showing us the numbers. 
And so our residuals are all screwed up because we would get a percentage of the license fees that these other shows were getting. But when mm -hmm. Netflix creates something and then license it to itself and we can't see what it actually paid for, like, like how much do I want to charge myself to put my own show on my my network? It's like <laughs> right. they weren't being honest with us about that. And yeah. so our, our residuals got completely destroyed. Basically, all of these other companies follow the Netflix model, and now they're all cr crying that they don't have a sustainable business model. Well, they did that to themselves. What the strike does is it removes their ability to make their own shows. They can't. They're no longer able to make their own shows because we've struck the contract, which means nobody can work for the AMPTP. And what we're mm -hmm. actually doing is we're giving interim agreements to uh, independent productions because um, they're the only ones that can make products right now. And so if any of these AMPTP companies want new products, new shows and new films, they're going to have to pay a, you know, a high price to those who can actually make the content right now because they're not allowed to make that content. Mm. And that's going to mean more money for our members. Plus, any productions that are using our interim agreement are agreeing to all of the terms that we were fighting the AMPTP for. And so it's got increased wages, increased residuals, better contributions to our pension and health plans, all these amazing protections for both when the show is being produced and then also the residuals and the revenue that's shared after the fact when it's licensed. So, uh, so yeah, we're basically trying to correct the imbalance that came out of all of these companies recklessly spending, trying to be technology companies like net, like Netflix, and then realizing that it's not a sustainable business model. I'm trying to, I'm trying to layman's terms, what you just broke down there. So you're basically saying that in the past, we used to be able to uh, benefit from uh, a success model of a show. We would all share in in the wealth of it. I mean, to a certain extent. But right. the Netflix model, they're like, no, we're just going to pay you whatever the hell we feel like. And we're going to keep all the profits. And not only that, we're not going to let you know if your show was profitable or not. And it's worse than that. You, that was a really good way to summarize it. But it's actually worse than that. Because... Mm -hmm. If you don't care about ratings and mm -hmm. you only care about subscribers, then what companies like Netflix were doing is they'll launch this kind of show to try to get these people to subscribe. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they see that they've gotten all the subscribers they could get out of that community, they cancel that show, mm -hmm. right? And then they take the show off their platform so we don't get the residuals out of it being on the platform. Then right. they'll launch this shiny new show over here to get more people to subscribe. And then they'll cancel that and take it off of Netflix. And then they'll launch this show over here. So they kept trying to pander to different audiences to get everybody to subscribe. But then they were you know, killing those projects off. So now shows don't have 25 or 28 episodes. They have maybe eight or 10. Now shows don't go for 20 seasons. They go for maybe one or two if they're lucky. So they've reduced the amount of episodes, they've reduced the amount of seasons, plus we get paid so much less. So it's really, they've they've profited off of all of that from subscriptions and we don't get any of that money. So, and all of these other companies started doing the same thing. So we've just been plundered by company after company for year after year while they're making cheap product off of our backs. It's not a sustainable thing. It's very exploitative and wasteful. And it sort of, uh, it sort of defeats the purpose because because scarcity is also a profitable thing, but but you just dilute it with a bunch of crap. And so people don't feel the need to watch as much because they know there'll be another crappy show on next week. And that's part of the problem, too, is like, you know, just throwing a lot of money at different show ideas doesn't mean they're going to be good. 
How important is it for you to be out here right now? Um, it's super important. I feel like I've been coming out probably four to five days a week since we went on strike. And why is that? Why would you say you, you chose to come out four or five days a week? For me personally, um, I have a disability and just me working in this industry is about representing people with disabilities and right now the barriers of entry are astronomical and i think that what we're fighting for with these contract negotiations with the amptp is something that's going to to help get more people working eventually you know what do you think is the the misunderstanding basically about from your opinion um this is a billion dollar industry. People are making tons of money off of the work that we do. And I think it is outrageous. The money is there. If people are making billions of dollars off your work, you cannot work for free. Those people should get paid. Thank you, Miriam. <laughs> Thank you. See you on the picket line. I'll see ya. <laughs> I would I would rather there be less actual shows or films out there mm -hmm. that pay everybody appropriately then have right. a bunch of them out there that don't pay people enough. Yeah, and and it's and it's also diluted. It's like a, a quantity over quality. With what happened with the pandemic, where even casting has so changed, where people are self-taping themselves at home. So now these companies are saving on the casting expenses of having to rent an office and pay the, pay for all that stuff. So they've put the costs of even trying to audition for stuff on the actor. Now they're auditioning hundreds of actors for roles as opposed to just 20 or 30 that when they had to when they brought you in in person. And so there's way more competition for these roles that don't even pay that much. And then so like every single audition now is essentially like a net loss for the community, because if you add up all of the time of everybody rehearsing and auditioning and put making a self tape and having their friends and family read with them. Like, right. you know, if, if 500 people and their friends and family put hours and hours and hours into auditioning for one role that pays a thousand bucks, that's just not sustainable. It sounds like the type of thing that happens when you do a profit over people, you know, that sort of template that was used in wall street is now sort of uh, permeated its way well, into. It also drives the point home that people will push you as far as they can until you say no. Right, right. And so that's what the strike is basically. Oh, so yeah. The strike about. is just the beginning. I mean, we're not going to be able to fix everything in one negotiation. It's probably going to take, you know, 10 years or 12 years for us to really get where we need to go. But mm -hmm. where this is the first time in 43 years that we're standing up in this contract for what we're worth. Yeah, and I should mention that too, that like uh, to let people know who are not familiar with the entertainment industry, we constantly, as there's a change in technology, like we did this in the 60s when movies were now showing on television, they didn't want to pay the actors even though they're, and so people fought for that. I think it was Ronald Reagan actually, mm -hmm. fought for that so that we can get paid uh, when a movie was showed on television because they were so if you don't kind of keep watching them they will try to get it and then in the 80s when videos and um, cable and all that stuff we weren't getting paid for cassette sales and video sales we had to fight to get money for that and that saved I can I can attest to that that saved a lot of actors from going into the poorhouse mm -hmm. and you were able to your work was still seen by people and you were able to get paid for work when a big new change comes along, 
we have to unfortunately strike in order for the employers to treat us fairly with that. And it happens with, and, you know, like you said, it happened with television. It happened with home video and cable. It happened. Now it's happening with streaming. It's like we have to, and and it, which is kind of messed up, right? Because our work is the same no matter where our work is shown, whether it's shown right. in a movie or theater or whether it's shown on TV or shown in on streaming. But the way our contracts have been constructed, we have to keep begging these companies to pay us when they want to show our work on these new platforms. They ask us to discount ourselves. We're like, hey, so there's this new thing called TV. We don't know if it's really going to work out. We don't know if there's any money in it. So will you work for a discount? We're like, okay. And then, hey, there's this new thing called like VHS. We don't know if it's going to work out. Hey, there's this new thing called DVD. We don't know if it's going to work out. Hey, there's this new thing called streaming. There's no money in it right now. We can't afford to pay you what you get paid on network television. And so we've gotten like fooled time and time and time again to like subsidize their profiting in these areas. We we take a pay cut to help them get this new technology going and then they screw us. And then by right. the time we try to negotiate our value back, they move on to the next new thing and then move on to the next new thing. So we're always playing catch up. So that's something that we need to address is how do we set up our contracts so that they can't do that to us anymore? Well, well, that leads me to a two-part question because, yeah, you're right. We're always behind the eight ball. And so when emerging technologies occur, we're always the ones who <laughs> lose out on it initially until we go, hey, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how do we become preemptive as opposed to that continuously happening the other thing I was thinking based on that is AI is also one of those things. And how do you feel like that is going to play into our future? Yeah. Well, when it comes to how do we prevent ourselves from being bamboozled again, a lot of it comes with people being more contract and more union literate. Like people mm-hmm. just need to learn more about how our union functions, how our contracts are are structured, because what we really need is is to reconfigure our our contracts so that you know how they say when we will like do a project or something and they'll say we want your rights to this throughout eternity in perpetuity with right. in all new technologies that have yet to be invented whatever like right. when we sign certain things they make sure that no matter what new technologies come along no matter what changes they have the right to use your name or likeness or blah 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 I don't know why we don't have in our contract, no matter what technology comes along, no matter how you're going to exhibit our work, we get paid the same. We're not, we shouldn't have to beg to get paid when you show our work in a new way. And that's what they have been able to fool us into doing time and time and time again. Uh, We have to be strong and stand up for the value of our work. And we have to restructure our contracts to make sure that no matter what new fancy technology comes along, we're covered. Um, it's not on our backs that they're going to explore these new technologies. Um, and if they do ever want us to discount ourselves or something, the only way that I would be okay with it is if we become investors in the project or if it's deferred pay with interest. So if they say, hey, you know, we're going to do this new thing called streaming. We want to pay you less because there's not as much mm-hmm. money in this. Yet. We'll be like, all right, well, I'll work for half the rate. But you're gonna, it's gonna be like a loan that I'm giving you that like you're gonna make me whole as soon as this thing is profitable and you're gonna pay me back with interest so that I was like an investor in your project. I wasn't like just profit sharing. 
Exactly. Like I'm an investor. I'm I'm deferring my pay. I'm not just giving you my work for less. That that's just an unhealthy precedent for us to have set that we do that. When it comes to artificial intelligence, you know, nobody wants to try to hold back technology um, in a way that is useful for us all. So artificial intelligence is going to change our lives and already has changed our lives in many ways that are healthy and positive and great, whatever. Um, it's giving voice to the voiceless. It's giving you know education to those that couldn't access it before. But when it comes to replacing human beings, you know, we don't have a, 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 a societal structure that can handle all of the people that will be put out of work with artificial intelligence taking those right. jobs. So what do you do with all of the accountants and all of the lawyers and all of the doctors and all of these people who an artificial intelligence can do some of their work for them um, better than they can do it because it doesn't get tired. It doesn't forget that a new study came out or a new drug you know, was found to be unsafe or this new law was passed or this new case law became a thing or you know, doesn't make mistakes on Excel spreadsheets or whatever. So um, it's amazing how this technology is going to replace probably more skilled professions first. We all as a society need to, th you know, really have serious conversations about what do we do as human beings um, with these technologies that make us less um, useful. You know, that's a challenge for every profession to sort through. And that's what we're advocating for is that every everybody who's engaged in the labor movement they should all be standing up for themselves with regards to artificial intelligence and how do they protect themselves while not holding back technology in a way that's kind of futile, right? right? Like when the, the horse and buggy had to go away because the cars were just going to be the new thing, right? Yeah. So like once the internet came along, like, I'm sorry, Encyclopedia Botanica, like your sales are going to go down. Like there's right. just, so in some ways we can't stop the mar the forward march of technology, but we do have to do it in a way that doesn't destroy our society and people's ability to support themselves. In the arts, we have the power of our union to say to these companies, like, you can use artificial intelligence in very, like, you know, meaningful ways, but you have to do it with our informed consent. You have to be humane about it. Like, you can't mm -hmm. just scan us and use our digital replica after we're dead forever for free, whatever. Like we have rights as human beings and you can't deprive us of those in your march for profits, you know, so we're taking a stand about, you know, we need to be informed, we need to give consent, we need to be compensated if you're going to use our name and likeness, because audiences come to see us, they come to see our faces, our choices, our artistry, and so you can make all the fake, you know, digital humans you want, but they don't they're not going to bring in the audiences like a real artist that human beings appreciate and celebrate for their skill and their craft and all of that. We want to celebrate human achievement and human accomplishment. And so we're just uh, negotiating so that the artistry that we engage in, that the companies are not going to take advantage of us in unethical ways. You make a good point because you're I prefaced the question about our field in acting and show business, but you it's sort of a global worldwide thing, workers in general. This is a, a human problem where we have to think how much artificial intelligence do we want into our life and how fast do we want to become uh, obsolete mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in all our professions. The other thing I'm thinking of is the CEOs, they're thinking like, oh yeah, we could just get rid of them and come. But 
artificial intelligence can also get rid of them because I I can see a, a algorithmic AI thing just doing a better job at being a CEO than them. Right. And you wouldn't have to give that a bonus of two hundred forty million. I mean, if you're a shareholder or you're an investor, if right. You- if you could talk to a AI and say, start a profitable company for me, run it, you know, optimize right. all of your, pro- you know, all of your logistics, all of your sourcing, all of your profiting, you know, all that stuff. Like if you could just tell an AI to start a company for you and make it profitable, it, we're probably not too far away from it being able to do that. And then it doesn't need yeah. like anybody. You know? right. <laughs> so we do have to have a, global conversation but we have to start with what's closest to us which is our our friends our family our own lives our own professions and hopefully sag after standing up against artificial intelligence and the writers guild starting standing up against artificial intelligence where it's being threatened in unhealthy ways we hopefully will give courage to others to stand up in the same way i mean the writers guild said will you just agree not to replace us with artificial intelligence and the amptp company said no, but we'll talk with you once a year about what new technologies are coming up. It's like, yeah, that doesn't help us at all. That's not yeah, that's, <laughs> I have a question, though, that this is sort of a, a hypothetical question. I don't know how negotiations are going, but if things don't go as we're planning, we have the writers and we have the actors. What's to stop us from just doing it ourselves? They're just hanging on the distribution, but that's that's actually eroding as well. So we have the two creative entities, writers and actors. Is it possible that we don't really need them? It is. It absolutely is, which is why we have offered these interim agreements that allow these independent productions that, by the way, independent does not have to mean low budget. It just means that it can't come from these companies that we're striking, the AMPTP companies. Mm. So we have almost 100 productions that have been granted an interim agreement. And from what I understand, as of today, which we have 700 more that are in the hopper that want the interim agreement, obviously, they're not going to get approved for it unless we can be assured that they're not the AMPTP companies trying to take advantage of this. Um, But even people, I think like Mark Ruffalo was posting about how we should just have a resurgence in indie films, indie projects. There should be new platforms where we can watch this stuff without having to pay these big mega companies that don't care about us at all. And I don't even really want to negotiate with the AMPTP anymore. Like that whole experience was so toxic and so gross. Like I would rather deal with CBS directly. I'd rather talk to Netflix directly. I'd rather talk to, you know, Fox directly or Disney directly. Why do I have to talk to some woman that's getting paid almost $3 million a year to turn the entire entertainment industry into revolt? So I think it's time for a whole restructuring of how entertainment is, is consumed and how we're paid and, you know, who our employers are and how they operate. I think it's, it's enough is enough. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm biased, but I think I kind of feel like we don't realize how much power we actually have, especially since there's writers and there's actors and everyone on all these other platforms are learning that, uh, you know, we can get to the people directly, like your show, for instance, The Chosen, and then they can be ethical, they call it ethical economics and ethical corporations, which is shouldn't be a revolutionary concept, but it is because everybody's on the greed model. Yeah, because because corporations are not people. They don't have ethics. They don't have values. They have one 
like mandate and that is to gobble up as much you know profit as possible that's part of why we're so concerned about ai is because machines don't have ethics they just have algorithms and so you've got to make sure that we don't unleash the beast by allowing computers to you know like like you could say to a computer like an ai like you know clean up the earth and it's like oh humans are the most messy people on the planet let's just kill all the humans and i accomplish my task because they don't have ethics you know we've got to we've got to install ethics same thing with a corporation you've got to install ethics in a corporation and we see evidence everywhere whether it's pharmaceutical companies or whatever that they will you know they will contribute to the death and destruction of society so it's it's back to corporate ca- accountability is basically yeah. what we're saying yeah well Sean I don't want to take up too much of your time but I, I do want to ask like a <laughs> sort of one more question how do you think things are going Oh gosh, I think that I think that SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild through these strikes is going to reshape entertainment in a way mm-hmm. that will protect us for many years to come. I think you know every time we've had a strike, and yeah. certainly had that joint strike in 1960, that's what gave us our pension and health plans and residual right. television. So right. we're not going to accept a deal that doesn't restructure things in a massive way that sets our membership up for success in the future. So I'm excited. I think our members are excited. I think that the the AMPTP companies underestimated our strength. They underestimated the fact that they've taught us how to be good strikers because most people can't make a living being actors. So we're used to being out there with no work. We're unafraid to tell them what we think about them because we don't need to work for them right now. You know, so like, you know, like, uh, it's amazing how much our members have been living in fear because they didn't want to piss off their employers. But the employers have basically said they want us to be homeless so that we'll accept any deal that they give us. So if that's what has come down to where it's either me being homeless or me picketing and telling the world what I think about you and that strategy, I'm going to tell the world what I think about that strategy and be out mm-hmm. there on the picket lines. So I think we're going to win. I think our member our members have, have solidarity. I think we have solidarity with the Writers Guild. So we're supporting each other. And I do not, I think that either the AMPTP is going to come to its senses and give us what it is that we deserve or we'll replace them wow i like this pretty badass <laughs> but i think you're right it's like that statement they said as far as wanting us to be homeless is basically the marie antoinette saying let them eat cake and it's like the, the straw that's breaking the camel's back there's a lot of people with money out there there's a lot of places with money out there we don't need to take it from these amptp companies if we don't want to they don't they can't make us work for them. So if they can't provide a healthy working environment that takes care of us, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who want to make 30 billion dollars a year in profits. Yeah. Sean Sharma, thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate so much for your clarity to let people know exactly what's happening because I think this movement is not just about like you said it's not just about actors. I think it's like a a prelude to what's happening around the world and corporations becoming unaccountable and putting you know, putting uh, profit over people and not having empathy and all the things that make us human, they're erasing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, us doing what we, the actors doing what we need to do, we're, we're like the whole world should be, uh, we're like, look, they're coming for you too. So we're doing it for everybody. Amen. Thank you so much for inviting me on. No problem, man. Thank you so much. And uh, this is Sean Sharma. And make sure you watch his show. Do you want to plug anything, by the way? 
Sure. I mean, if anybody hasn't seen The Chosen and is curious, it's just thechosen.tv is the website and you can get to everything there. Nice. We're just adjacent to the strike. We just took a break and we ran into Becky. So, Hi, Raul. My name's Becky. I live in Culver City, California. I'm married to a wonderful cameraman. And uh, our family is suffering greatly because of this strike. What do you think about the uh, technique of striking? I mean, be honest. I think it's unfortunate that people have to stand out on the street holding signs in the heat to get the pay that they deserve to live here in Los Angeles and create all this content for the giant corporations that benefit greatly. But now after months and months, I'm sick of it. I want it to end and I want my husband to have a job again and to get back to our living and surviving. I mean, and there's been a quote that's saying that well, we're going to starve, starve the writers and actors out. We'll see how how they are once they lose their houses and stuff like that. What do you think about that type of uh, sort of attitude or towards the industry? You know, it has taken a huge hit, a big toll on our family, my marriage, on our finances, everything. It is, it's been like the carpet's been ripped out from under our life to starve us out. You know, who, who would want to do that? Why not be uh, grateful to your workers? Why not take want to take care of your people? I mean, it's our whole country now is just get mine and get out, you know, and not care about people. We could all be eating blueberries by the pool if, you know, people were a little kinder and nicer and thoughtful. Uh, Becky, thank you so much. Thank you for getting out there and standing up for what's right. And I hope that the studios come around because this is not going to end well if they don't uh, take care of their people.